0: Morning, church. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we come to you now. With the words of that song as our prayer, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we might understand and love and apply your words of life. Please grant us, Father, to to cherish the Lord Jesus Christ and to bow down to Him in our hearts, in our lives. We ask these things in His name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. This morning we are finishing the chapter and we'll be reading verse 35 through Verse 44, so as you find your place there, if you would stand with me, we'll read that section, Mark 12, beginning in verse 35, and as Jesus taught in the temple, He said, How can the scribes say that the the Christ is the Son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly, and in his teaching he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and Have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contribute out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You may be seated. The final week of Jesus' life, as recorded in Mark, is like one big crucible for everyone involved. A crucible turns up the heat and brings impurities to the top so that they can be dealt with. The events are are certainly bringing out the worst in the religious leaders, showing them to be hypocrites, jealous, power mongers. The events are proving Jesus to be pure already. No impurities coming to the surface. In all the heat, He is responding impeccably. And it's clear then that sinful men are going to crucify the sinless Lord of glory. Proving Jesus to be worthy of exaltation and the Jewish leaders to be worthy of condemnation. The lordship of Christ is like the thread that connects this whole section. Christ is Lord, and that's why He has the right to cleanse the temple. That's why He is perfect in holiness. That's why the Jewish leaders reject Him. They don't want a Lord, and that's why they'll be condemned. Anyone who would belong to the kingdom must embrace Christ as he is, which is Lord. Now, that this is being emphasized, that Christ is Lord, that this is being emphasized as he is on his way to die on a cross for others indicates that Jesus' lordship is a lordship unlike any the world has ever known. Jesus is a lord who doesn't lord. He is a lord who humbly serves and sacrifices himself. And so those who would follow him, they they must do the same. So once again, we find Mark emphasizing these things. And in the first scene, he shows that Christ again is Lord of all. That's what this first few verses indicate to us. Christ is Lord of all. Look look again at verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. This is an understandable segue from the previous three interactions that Jesus has had with the Jewish leaders who were challenging Jesus' authority. Now he questions the adequacy of their understanding of the Christ. And if we were to isolate this passage, it may appear that Jesus is arguing that the Christ, the the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, is not the Son of David or or descended from David. But we can't isolate passages like that. Remember that the first verse of Mark identified Jesus as the Christ. So we know that, that Jesus is the Christ, and in chapter 10... Which was weeks ago now, chapter 10, there Bartimaeus the blind man identified Jesus as the son of David. So Jesus is both the Christ and he is the son of David. And when Bartimaeus called Jesus the son of David, Jesus did not correct him. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, identifies Jesus as both the Christ and the son of David. Likewise, Luke chapter 3 identifies him as both. Remember that in Mark 11, Jesus intentionally entered Jerusalem to begin this this last week of His life. He entered Jerusalem in ways that would evoke imagery from the Old Testament of that promised Davidic king. God in, in 2 Samuel 7 promised to David that He would send a king in the line of David who would have an eternal throne and who would build a house for God. That promise is a a prominent marker in the Old Testament. And Jesus came into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, presenting Himself as the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9 reads this way, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is He, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey." In other words, Jesus intentionally presented Himself as that Davidic king coming into the city. Further, when Jesus entered the, the city, He was greeted as that promised Davidic king. Mark eleven nine and 10 records this. Those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus intentionally presented Himself as the coming Son of David, and the people received Him as such. So what all that should tell us is that here in chapter 13, Jesus is not arguing that the Christ is not the Son of David. The question is, is the Christ only the Son of David? Is He merely a, a human descendant of David, albeit chosen of God for a special purpose. Jesus argues here that the Christ is more. Now, Psalm 110 was read for us this morning. I would encourage you to turn over there with me now. Psalm 110. Jesus is using David's own words from Psalm 110 to make the case that the Christ is is more than the son of David. He reminds us, hearers, David said this in the Holy Spirit, meaning that these are inspired words. This is not just the words of a man, David, but these words of God, the Holy Spirit, came through David. David declared in Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord. Now look at how how your Bible translation has differently formatted those two occurrences of the word Lord. One is in all caps, the first is in all caps, and the second is is not in all caps. That serves to signal to us that they are actually two different words in the original text. It was an ancient custom of the Hebrews not to pronounce the divine name Lord. Yahweh. So, whenever the Hebrews would read the divine name Yahweh out loud, they would not say Yahweh, they would rather say, My Lord, Adonai is is the Hebrew word, they'd say Adonai. And in keeping with that that, that tradition, our translations also, they do not print the name Yahweh, but they write the name Lord instead, but they mark it in all caps. Where the, Lord, the, where the word Lord is, is written normally, that is not in all caps, that is just the, the, the occurrence of the normal word Lord. So here David is saying, Yahweh, God, Yahweh says to my Lord or my Master, Yahweh says to my Master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, Jesus is saying that that, that Yahweh has said to my master, who is the Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls the coming Christ, my Lord, my master. So, Mark 12.37, how is he his son, Jesus says? That That is, how is he merely his son? Must not the Christ be greater than David? If David calls him master or Lord, that the Christ is David's Lord would speak weighty things to the hearts of this original audience. If we put ourselves in their their shoes and understand their history, this would be a sobering thing to think that the Christ is greater than David. Because the reign of David for, for the Jews, man, those were the glory days. That's what that's we look back to wishing that we could go back there. That's when everything was wonderful. Israel was on the top of the world. David was the standard for all other kings. It was during the reign of David that God gave Israel rest from all her enemies. That's recorded there in the promise of this Davidic king in 2 Samuel 7. David, imperfect as he was, he was... He, he represented the pinnacle of Israelite history. It was, it was all downhill from there. And when, when, when God promised David a son in 2 Samuel 7, and when the, the prophets reiterated that promise, the, the people hearing this promise, they understood, oh, good, that promise is still outstanding. That means that, that we're going to have a, 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 a king like David again. And they anticipated this human descendant of David to bring in a kingdom like his. And, and they, were, they were going to be thrilled with that. Because think about where they are as Jesus is talking to them. They're in their land, but they are under foreign oppressors. And if we read what, what we call second temple liter- literature, which is literature written from the, the time of the building of Zerubbabel's temple, to, to this, this, this period when the, the temple is destroyed in, in A.D. 70. If we read that literature, we understand that these people, they think of themselves as still in exile. Even though they're living in their own land, they think of themselves in exile because they are under foreign oppressors. So the return to a merely human Davidic king, that's fantastic news. That the fulfillment of God's promise is a figure that David, would call my master. That indicates a throne, that indicates a kingdom greater than David's. How much greater? Well, Psalm 110 indicates that it is a throne in the heavens at the very right hand of God. Just astounding to the ears of the people of Jerusalem. The coming Davidic king will be enthroned next to God in the heavens. See, the Christ comes not merely to put a human descendant of David on an earthly throne, but to put God the Son on the throne of the heavens, the earth, and the human heart. The Christ comes to bring all creation to a Better Eden. Paradise was lost to to all of us because of our, our sin in the very beginning. You Think about all of the misery that we experience in this life, every bit of it, including the rise and fall of nations and the rise and fall of foreign oppressors. All of that misery in this life is actually a symptom of the reign of sin and death in the human heart And it is actually a symptom of the reign of the power of the devil over this present world. And the Christ comes not merely to put down a human nation oppressing the Jews, but he He comes to put down cosmic evil in all of its forms. Is that good news or what? Now this Christ, He does this in several ways we find we find taught in the Scriptures. First of all, the Christ comes to live a perfect life. That is a necessary ingredient of the kingdom that He's going to bring because we could not do it. He earns the righteous record that we need in order to enter God's presence once again. If we're going to be a part of the kingdom that He brings, we must have a righteous record of obedience, which we do not have. That's what's separating us from God in our natural state. The Christ does that for us. Secondly, He suffers and dies in our place on the cross so that our sins can be forgiven that we might be reconciled to God. By Christ's resurrection from the dead, He gives eternal life to all who repent and trust in Him. A third thing that this Christ does is that He comes a second time to judge the living and the dead, casting all who continue in their rebellion into the lake of fire along with the devil his demons and death itself the lord says to my lord sit at my right hand until i put your enemies under your feet that that verse from psalm 110 is quoted in acts chapter 2 1 corinthians 15 hebrews chapter 1 hebrews chapter 10 and in all of those places it is attributed to jesus christ identifying him as the christ and it identifies His ascension to the right hand of the Father after the resurrection, where He waits until His second coming. Now listen, you and I, where we stand in history, we are now waiting for that second coming. We are now waiting for Jesus to return. And just as surely as Jesus accomplished atonement in His first coming, He will come again to judge the world. He will come again. And we know fully what those listening to Jesus in Jerusalem at the time did not. Jesus is not merely the son of David. He is a son of David, but he's not merely a son. And he is not just superior to David. He is superior to David, but even more than that, Jesus is God. God. And that's the point that the author of Hebrews makes when he brings Psalm 110 into his first chapter in in, in Hebrews chapter 1. He's making the point that Jesus is God. The Christ is David's son, but he is David's Lord because he is the Lord Yahweh. And upon his completed work of of redemption, he was enthroned in the heavens as Lord of all all, Lord of all. That that is what Jesus sees when He reads Psalm 110, verse 1. Now, the scribes, they've missed something when they read Psalm 110. They've missed something. And not by just a little, but they've missed it by as far as the earth is from the heavens. The Christ is a God-man. He is worthy of absolute allegiance. He's worthy of adoration. He's worthy of all service. And this, the scribe's willingness to, to cast away the Christ, not just to cast Him away, but to crucify Him, indicates their hatred for anyone to be called Lord over them. What about, what about you and I? How do we regard this Lord? It it would be impossible to over-exalt Christ in our minds or in our lives. It would be impossible to over-submit. It would be impossible to over-worship. He is the Son of God. All worship ascribed to the Father is also ascribed to the Son. Listen to this from Revelation 5.13. There John writes, "I, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne, God the Father, and to the Lamb, to both of them, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. All worship ascribed to the Father is also ascribed to the Son. For David to call the Christ, my Lord, is to submit to the Christ to recognize His, his utter supremacy over all things. If David bows to the Christ, the Son of David, as Lord, so also should everyone else. It's the point that Jesus is making contra the scribes. Christ is Lord of all. As we move on in the passage, we find that that Mark is is, is intending to make an additional point here as he's he's putting these these scenes together. The second point is that submitting to Christ's Lordship is to selflessly serve others. It is to selflessly serve others. And he shows us that by giving us the opposite picture in the scribes. Verse 38, And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Beware of the scribes who... And and He gives their characteristics, which can be boiled down to three basic characteristics. The first is that they love to be honored. And He gives several examples of their love for honor. He gives four examples. They like to walk around in these ostentatious robes. They like for everybody to look at how they're dressed. Look at how important I am. They like to be greeted in the marketplaces. They like to be seen as important. Look at me. They like the best seats. In the synagogues, they like the places of honor. At the feasts, they like to be exalted, they love to be honored. Second characteristic is that they take advantage of the weak. He says specifically that they devour widows' houses. We're not sure exactly what that means. Commentators have made suggestions. I, I would say that, that the following scene where Jesus sees this widow putting money into the, the, the offering books, that may be the best suggestion. The widow is willing to give all that she has for the work of the Lord. The scribes are those who are willing to take everything that a widow has for their own personal gain. That's a quite serious offense given everything that the Scriptures say from cover to cover about about the Father's heart for widows and orphans. Widows were to be protected, not exploited. The scribes were the kind to exploit them. They take advantage of the weak. A third characteristic of them is that they make a pretense of piety. They make a pretense of piety. There's, There's no genuineness in their worship but it's all for show. They make a show of long prayers. Our attention might be called back to to Mark chapter 7 where Jesus said, Well did Isaiah say of you hypocrites as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Their worship is all show. They don't love God. And it all boils down to this. The scribes use their religious authority for personal gain and honor. They use their authority for personal gain and honor. They lord their authority over others for their own personal gain. Now think about how unlike Jesus they are. Jesus is a Lord who doesn't lord. But, it, but He is a Lord who sacrifices and serves. He, is, he, he, he gives the highest of, of all eternal gifts at His own expense. He said in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. What we're seeing now in Mark is Jesus is on on His way to the cross to do that very thing. And so Jesus says of the scribes, Beware of the scribes. They are dangerous. Certainly their, their behavior is dangerous. They're going to take advantage of you. They're going to hurt you for their own gain. And you should not emulate them. But more dangerous is the theology that undergirds their behavior. And what is their theology? Well, he's just he's just talked about it in the in the passage above. They have an inadequate view of Christ. They do not recognize him as Lord of all. That inadequate view of Christ is, is going to leave them and has left them dead in their trespasses and sins such that their personal authority that they have acquired is being used for their own selfish gain. You will know them by their fruit, is how Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 7. Beware. Their, their, their behavior is harmful, but their theology underneath is more harmful The scribes reject Jesus as the Christ. They demonstrate it by lives that are diametrically opposed to His. Don't listen to them that the Christ is something less than than, than the Lord of all. They will lead you away from the truth. That's what Jesus is saying. And the the Lord closes this little section by saying that it's going to bring upon them a greater condemnation. What is He talking about? Remember that when Jesus came into Jerusalem, he acted out judgment in Jerusalem through that, that sandwich. Do you remember that sandwich of of the cursing of the fig tree and then the cleansing of the temple and then the fig tree perishing? Do you remember that? And we saw how that was that was Jesus acting out judgment on the temple. Well, judgment is coming on the Jewish elites, on the temple, on Jerusalem. And what we're going to see in chapter 13 is that that, that is reiterated. In fact, jump down to chapter 13. Look at verse 1. This is this is right after the passage that, that we're looking at, obviously. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and, and what wonderful buildings. Obviously, they're talking about the temple. And he said to them, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Again, he's referring to the coming destruction of the temple. Judgment is coming upon them for their rejection of him. And I would say that that's, that is the, the, the condemnation that, that Jesus is talking about here. The scribes' condemnation will be worse. In this judgment that's coming on the temple, the scribes are going to have it worse. Why? Because they led others to reject. They were the leaders of this insurrection against the Christ. And so they're going to receive the greater condemnation. You and I should beware of such leaders. Leaders who deny the absolute lordship of Christ and whose lives show it. If we, if we could boil down all the teaching of the New Testament about qualifications for leadership in the church, and those, those passages are passages like Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy 3, 1 Peter 5. If we could boil the teaching of all of those, those passages down, it would be two things that, that we must have in those who, who lead us in the church. They must have the ability to understand and communicate truth and their lives must have been transformed by that truth. You've got to have those two things. Men who understand and can communicate the truth and men whose lives have been transformed by that truth. Another way of saying that is just men who are increasingly like the Lord that they, they faithfully proclaim. And you know what the, the New Testament would, would indicate to us is that these things should be increasingly true of all of us, maybe not the ability to teach, but all of us, all of us should have a growing knowledge of Christ, a growing commitment to the truth, and an increasing transformation into His likeness. To submit to Christ's Lordship is to selflessly serve others. If we have submitted to Christ as Lord, it should be the case that we find in our lives that we are doing the things that Jesus does. Third, to submit to Christ's Lordship is to surrender all. It is to surrender all. Verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. Now, our, our editors of our translations, they have, at least the one that I have here, has put a, a separation between this passage and the one before it and, and even before the one before that. Why, why should we put these things together? Well, there, there are, there are linguistic connections between these these three little sections that we have put together, and I want to want to show some of those to you. First of all, here, there's no transition to a different location. As as Mark tends to do when he when he when he's signaling that he is shifting gears, there's just in verse 41. There's just an and indicating that this is the next thing that's happening in the same sequence. Second, that Jesus is sitting opposite the treasury indicates that He's still in the temple. So He's just finished teaching in the temple. If if you look up at verse 35, it says, as Jesus taught in the temple, now He's sitting down opposite the treasury. Verse 21, He's still right there. hasn't gone anywhere. (coughs) So we're we're still in the same setting. He has critiqued the, the, the scribes teaching. He's critiqued their behavior. Now he's going to commend somebody related to the the very things that he has critiqued. A third thing is that that he, he noted of the scribes that they devour the houses of widows. They devour the houses of widows. In this scene here at the end of chapter 12, a widow plays prominently. So these things should all go together. The Lord sits Watches people give money to the treasury. Many rich were giving much. Verse 42 And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Now, if you put these two coins together, they were worth approximately six minutes of an average worker's wage. About six minutes. How much is six minutes of your time worth? I'll, I'll give you a second to do that math. How much is six minutes of your time worth? For some of us, it's going to be more than others. If, if, if you make $15 an hour, it's going to be $1.50. $1.50. Can you imagine? So we've got our boxes at the back there. Can you imagine put, putting a, a, a buck and a half in the box back there? You, 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 you might be so embarrassed that, that you, you don't even put it in at all. You just, you just walk by those boxes. You say, I gave online. I gave online. You just don't, especially if, if you're seeing other people putting these fat checks, these fat envelopes of cash. I gave online. She, she's, she's giving the, the, the cultural equivalent of her buck and a half in the midst of many, many rich giving much, and the, the text emphasizes many rich giving much, and then there's one poor widow giving a penny. You know, most people, let's be honest, if we're, we're sitting where Jesus is sitting and watching that scene, watching the whole thing, all, all, all the people giving a ton of money, and then, and then the, one, the, the person putting in the buck and a half. What, what, what's standing out to us? Man, where all these people get this money? <laughs> it's amazing how much money these people are putting in there. I mean, that, that might be the headline for a lot of us. But then, but then when the person with the buck and a half, oh, man, that's embarrassing. Just buy a Coke or something. You know, or if somebody's sitting next to you, 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 you're like, "Don't look, don't, don't, don't look." Just spare them their dignity. Don't even look at it. it it's an embarrassing scene. Verse 43. And he he called his disciples to him and said to them, that, "Now, we'll just stop right there." That that phrase, "He called his disciples together," that 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 phrase is used over and over in Mark. He he called them together, and it is is used when Jesus has something significant for His disciples to do or significant for His disciples to learn. So it's like a signal. By this time in Mark, we we know that He he wants to show His disciples something significant. And, and again, if it's us, what, what, what's the significant thing that we might want to say to the disciples? Look at all these people giving all this money. I mean, they get it, right? Twelve? These people got their priorities in order. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty has put in everything she had all she had to live on. She gave more, a, 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 a buck and a half in our terms. She gave more. And, and, and we might think that that's laughable, not Jesus, and, and not the Father. You see, you, you can afford to do this kind of valuation when you own everything. If you're, if, you're, if you're taking notes, you might write down Psalm 50. You could read the whole psalm. It's a great psalm. But verses 10 through 12 read this way Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all its fullness are mine. God doesn't have money problems. He's not dependent upon the large gifts of the richest of the rich to make the world go round, He's the source of all wealth. And though Jesus lived in poverty all His life, He never sweated it. You know that story in Matthew 17? It's time to pay the, 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 the temple tax. How does Jesus pay it? He literally sends Peter fishing. That's how He pays His tax. Jesus doesn't worry about money. God isn't impressed by money. He doesn't need it. That's why Jesus evaluates these givers' respective gifts the way that he does. The nominal value is not what's important. It's what's connected to it. And and that is what what connects this scene to what has preceded it. What we do with money is a great indication of who or what owns our hearts. Another way of saying that is it's a great indication of who or what is our Lord. Lord. These rich contributed out of their abundance. This is just another way of saying it, it, they, they contributed out of what they didn't need. Their, their offering was not costly to them. The widow, on the other hand, though, though by nominal comparison, her, her gift was just a tiny fraction of, of what they gave Hers was more because she gave what she couldn't afford. Jesus says that she gave out of her poverty. The the, the word that that he uses there means that she gave from a condition of not having enough. She she didn't have enough. Think again about the sum. Maybe a dollar and a half in our money. That's all she had. This this woman is poor like like we have never understood. We've, We've never seen this kind of poor. Somebody, a dollar and a half is all she has. If 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 a buck and a half is all you have, that money's got to have some babies in order for you to buy a loaf of bread. You can't afford to be giving that away. She gave from what she couldn't afford. She could not afford this this dollar and a half. And the last phrase in, in Mark 12:44 says, "All she had to live on." Most translations give it to us in, in something like that, all that she had to live on. It, it's more literally her whole life." It's the, the most literal way to, to translate it. She gave her whole life. And unless the widow is suicidal, her offering indicates two things. First of all, she believes that what she has is actually his. And again, another way of saying that is that she believes that He is Lord. Second, He's a good Lord. He he can be trusted. He's not a Lord like the scribes. What did Jesus say about the scribes in the previous passage? They devour the houses of widows for their own gain. But but she believes that this is a Lord who provides clearly. This, This is what she believes of God. And so she freely gives Everything she has. Now, our temptation, especially our, our, Western, our Western minds, we want to take just everything that we see, ultra-literally, and so our temptation might be to think that if we don't give our last dollar and a half, the Lord is not pleased with us. And, and maybe we're hoping, Pastor Greg, give us an out here. Um, well, well, I'm going to give you an out and I'm not. The idea that, that God expects us to give us our every last, our literal, every last dime, that can't be squared with other teaching on money and giving in the New Testament. There are other passages like 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 that gives more straightforward principles about, about, about giving and our attitude about it. Our, our giving should be joyful and, and it should be sacrificial, but there's nothing to indicate that we are expected to give to the point of destitution, and even in passages like Acts, I'm sorry, Acts chapter five, that, that passage where Ananias and Sapphira were killed by God because they, they brought an offering and they kept back some for themselves. Peter explains to Ananias in that passage, "Look, when, when, when you owned that piece of property, when it was all yours, it was at your disposal." In other words, you could do with it what you pleased. And even after you sold it, the proceeds, they were all yours. You could do what you pleased. The, pro- the problem was they lied about it. They said they were giving everything and they kept back some for themselves. The New Testament nowhere condemns wealth per se. We should gather then that, that giving our last dime is not the point being made by jesus through the writing of mark here rather the idea is just the surrender of our whole life living in the conviction that everything that is mine is his and that that he can be trusted with it he can be trusted with this And, and and i would suggest to you that the reason that jesus is so taken with his widow the reason that he calls his disciples together says look at this The reason is is because she reminds him of himself. Poor and lowly. Giving her whole life as an offering to the Father because he can be trusted with it. This poor widow, she's far more like Jesus than the scribes. Giving all. Trusting God. For many, many, the, the measure of whether He has our heart, is is going to be measured by what we do with our money. And so for some among us, perhaps, the best way to express surrender this, this morning is going to be to give more monetarily. Perhaps you are in the habit of, of only giving what is extra, what you don't need, what you can afford. And you recognize now that that's a sign that, that, that You are of the conviction that that your money is actually yours and He can't be trusted with it. Or that your money is yours and and He can't be trusted to take care of you. You're recognizing now that that's a sign of a lack of submission, a lack of faith. If that's you, I I would suggest to you that you surrender and that a a sign of that surrender would be to give more. For others, it, it may be your time. You're just miserly with your time and, and you'll give money all day as long as you don't have to give your time you're behaving as if your time is yours and not his as if as if you are lord and not him and so to follow him this morning would be to sacrifice your time see every minute of this day belongs to the lord and I'm going to give it freely. It could be something else entirely. Something else that that you are clutching with a death grip before the Lord saying, mine, not yours, mine. And and it's not that God needs whatever that you're you're holding on to. God needs nothing. The thing is that it's His because He's Lord of all. And you're holding on to it is a statement of who you believe to be Lord. Now that, that's that's one way of 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 taking these things and applying them. Another way of thinking through these things, there may be another category of us who who need to apply this this passage, not, not by looking at what we still need to surrender to the Lord, but, but thinking rightly about what we have surrendered. Perhaps you suffer from the from comparison syndrome. And you you you've you have given all that you are to the Lord. You have given your buck and a half, whatever that represents, of your money, your time, your talents. You've given it all. But you see many rich giving much. And you feel as if yours is nothing. You are comparing, comparing, comparing. God is not comparing. Is your heart His? That is the question. Does your heart belong to His, to Him? C- c- consider again how, how uniquely Jesus viewed that, that scene at the treasury. The, the, the highlight was, was the woman whose actions said, Yahweh is my Lord and I trust Him. It delights this Lord to see those who surrender everything without a thought of how it measures up in worldly terms. It delights Him. Jesus is Lord, supreme over all creation. He needs nothing. On His way to the cross is where we find Him here in Mark. He's on His way to the cross where He will surrender all selflessly serving others unto death that they might have all the blessings in the heavenly places. Conversely, on his way, he he warns about the scribes who use their authority for their own benefit. And he commends this widow who, like him, gives her all. This, this, This Lord, he is a Lord unlike any the world has ever seen. He is a Lord who doesn't lord, but he gives and serves. And he calls those who submit to him to do the same, to give and to serve. Let us do so with joyful hearts, understanding what He has given and how He has served as our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have proven Yourself trustworthy, and that Christ, as, as the serving Lord over all the, the earth and His work on the Christ, as He has served us well, that He has proved Himself trustworthy. We pray that You would forgive us for our doubt as we tend to hold things back. we tend to serve ourselves in in contradiction to the life that we've been called to. We pray, Father, that you would just grant us to be enamored anew with who Christ is and what he loves, that the life that we have in him would energize us to be like him, We pray that as we, as we spend a few moments in silence in the next, the next short time, that you would grant us, Lord, by the Holy Spirit, to discern what you would have us each individually to do. What you would have us to relinquish unto the, the sweet and kind lordship of Christ. Please make that clear to us, Father, in these coming moments. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.